This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast, where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back to the Future of Finance. I have the huge pleasure of being joined today by Dan Garrett, the co-founder and CEO of Farewell. Welcome, Dan. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Great to have you here. I've brought you over to Canary Wharf, the concrete jungle, away from Farewell's beautiful canal side offices in horrible weather. So I'm sorry for making you come here. It's lovely to be here. I actually love Canary Wharf so much. Good. I'm very pleased to hear it. You've got a much better attire for Canary Wharf than I've got. Dan's not suited and booted, which is definitely... I think, the outfit of the future. But speaking of the future, today is actually kind of about the past. It's about the death space. It sounds negative, sounds taboo, but it's fascinating. And Dan has been pioneering this space for a long time. It looks like you wanted to change the world straight out of college. Why did you decide to take the risk of becoming an entrepreneur so early? And where did this idea come from? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's easy to say straight out of college, but I also spent six years in college. So it's not like I did three oh, and, then, and, then, and then left. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a very wild experience. Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know, really. I've just always been interested in loads of different things. I had a non-linear background. I left school and briefly worked in manufacturing in the glue industry and the wow. paint industry before thinking oh I should probably go to university and I did maths and engineering which I absolutely loved I've kind of always been fascinated in how things worked the difficult bit of doing any science subject particularly in the UK is it ends up being so uncreative you know you learn how a steam engine works from first principles but you never end up really building something and as much as everyone always complains about you know the lack of engineering talent in the UK frankly you can spend the first 10 years of your career designing a handrail in a stadium before you get to do anything fun so after university I worked in design for a bit worked in McLaren designing cars which is amazing I designed a little piece of a cup holder uh, which I think didn't actually go down very well <laughs> and worked in fashion for a bit and then did a two-year master's at the Royal College of Art it was the first year that they ran this course it was split between Tokyo and New York and London and it basically brought together people from science backgrounds design and business wow so I don't think I went into that being like I want to be a you know FTSE 100 CEO but that is the path I'm on now I suppose <laughs> no in all seriousness I didn't go into that thinking I want to start a company but I went into that being like it's amazing to work in this multidisciplinary context you know it's crazy even when you go from doing your GCSEs to your A levels it's kind of like am I going to do science am I going to do art then you've got to decide at university am I going to do one of these two things so for me it was kind of bringing together different things that I was interested in in that one particular course and the structure of work at the Royal College of Art is you just work on project after project after project. And I started treating each one like a business. Mm -hmm. I started treating each one by at the beginning of it being like, how far can I push this? I don't just want to do a presentation to my classmates or a poster or something, but I actually want to get it out into the world. And it was an amazing experience to spend two years doing that. I love having conversations that suddenly run parallel to something else you're doing in life. I'm reading a book called Range at the moment. Range is all about the theory that generalists who play the orchestra in business have a grounding the successful ones have a grounding in multiple disciplines and I think hearing that from maths and science to engineering to art college to New York London Tokyo it's it's got it all 
handrails and cup holders. Um, and you mentioned, yeah, now on the path to being someone at the helm of a, a FTSE 100 company. It was Tim Levine that brought you guys to my attention. And Tim will be delighted to hear that, first off. Tim is uh, an investor in Fairwell through Augmentum. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what we're talking about? What is Fairwell? What does it do? Yes, I would love to. So for anyone in the investor community listening, lots of people like to talk about category defining businesses. You know, it's big in Silicon Valley. You want to invest in whoever's going to create the category. And I think we've luckily stumbled onto something great, which I like to call death tech. So it's like, you know, fintech or legal tech, but it's death tech. And frankly, it's a bit of a one horse race. You know, people always say, how did you come up with the idea? If anything, it's one of the most glorious bits of tactical laziness I've ever done in my career <laughs> because the landscape is, is so much less competitive. Yeah. That's not why I went into it at all. I was working in a geriatric home in Tokyo and we had this whole team of design engineers and ethnographers and researchers and our remit was to come up with products or services that would make their lives better. And I really felt like at the end of six months working on it, the we'd failed in our task. All we'd done was focus on the superficiality of aging. You know, it was getting in and out of bed and up and down the stairs rather than the fact we were surrounded by a bunch of people in the last throes of life. You know, they don't have their friends and family around them. They're terrified of dying. And all of us who were trained in getting to the bottom of whatever the biggest problem was that these people were struggling with, we just kind of ignored it. So I came back to the UK and I thought, isn't that interesting that we did a bad job? Like everyone there was really good. And I spent a couple of months in the death industry. I organized 15 funerals and I got qualification in will writing and I helped a couple of people to file probate applications, which is all the kind of financial legal stuff that you need to do after someone dies and had this revelation that was like, this is amazing. It's the biggest consumer industry that's been untouched by technology. It's a 20 billion pound market where 2% of it is online. And it isn't because it's macroeconomically impossible and it's not because it's technologically unfeasible. It's because there is this profound human aversion to talking about and dealing with death. Like that as a designer is such a juicy opportunity, you know, a big market to work on. But the problem that sits behind it is this complex, tragic, romantic part of what it is to be human. And I thought, yeah, I'd love to spend some time working on that. So my final project at the Royal College of Art, which is a big deal, there's a show about 80,000 people come to it and these beautiful sculptures and paintings. And me and my friend, Tom, who's my flatmate, who's a software engineer, he'd been a software engineer for about six months and he was working for a company called Bumpf, which printed Instagrams on marshmallows. And me and Tom made this will writing website. It was like beautifully designed little website. We built the computer into a wooden box and there was a printer inside it that you couldn't see. And then you like went up to it in the exhibition and you pressed a button and this little will came out from behind this wooden box and people just lost their minds they didn't they didn't i mean the website was good but they just were blown away by the fact this piece of paper came out of nowhere but we had a queue of hundreds of people waiting to use this thing and in those hundreds of people were venture capitalists investors angel investors and straight away people were like this is an amazing idea like i've never seen anything like this so me and tom tried to play it cool and we're like yeah yeah let's do a business um <laughs> and obviously we had no idea what we were doing at all but yeah, then we did it. we done a business. Um, <laughs> so within 18 months of launching our product, which is in December of 2016, we were the biggest will writer in the UK. So 
We now write about one in 25 wills. And we've got competitors like the co-op that's got 300 people in their legal services business who also do a brilliant job. But we do things kind of differently. So at the heart of what we were trying to do was if you say to someone, which unfortunately I have to do, I work in the wills business. You know, if you don't get the chance to really pitch it and you're like, I work in wills or probate or funerals, the picture that pops into most people's heads is this kind of grey, drab, Victoriana, like top hats and rain and tombstones. And part of what we're trying to do as a company is to build the first consumer brand in death, you know, to replace that terrifying, dull image with something that feels more accessible and friendly, that is about taking care of the things and the people that you love rather than these dreary exercises in legal compliance. No one's ever really tried to do that before in a commercial context. And it is an unwaveringly fascinating thing to work on for me and everyone else in our team. I'm still not answering your question very well. We're the biggest will writer in the UK. Last year, we launched our probate business, which is kind of, you know, like deal with the stuff after someone dies. A lot of our customers were dying and we were there to help them with that service. By the end of 2019, our probate business was almost as big as our wills business, which is really exciting, incredibly rapid growth. On December the 1st, and this is the first time I'm talking about it publicly, which is cool. It's an exclusive. This is an exclusive. <laughs> yeah, this is an exclusive. We started cremating people. Wow. Willingly. And they were all dead when we did it. <laughs> but by the end of the year, we were the sixth biggest funeral provider in the UK. So from December the 1st to December the 31st, <laughs> I think that's how many days there are on it. Yeah. Uh, so what we launched was this very simple, affordable cremation proposition nationwide, and it's taken off incredibly well. And, and what we're trying to do overall is be a one-stop shop for every service dealing with death and to outcompete everyone else on a price basis. Because at the very heart of this is the fact that you know, in what other context do you wander off the local high street, go into a shop, spend eight and a half thousand pounds when you're in a really kind of emotionally tortured state without shopping around? That is what the funeral sector is like at the moment. Mm. The level of price increase in no way correlates to development of new services that, you know, give people what they need when they're grieving. So for some reason, when it comes to dealing with death, you don't shop around, services are overpriced, people end up suffering the consequences of you know having to go into debt to pay for a funeral or yeah. just not having something that personally represents what they want to do. We do cremations for around a thousand pounds, which is a fraction of what it costs elsewhere. Yeah. Okay. You just give me a lot of food for thought. The first thing that springs to mind, right? You're spending nearly 10,000 pounds when you go through that process. It's something that happens to everyone. The pension crisis, yeah, it might be 30 years out, is something that I think about a lot. The average person in the UK earns less than £30,000 a year. The average person in the UK saves less than 3% of their salary each year. That means it takes more than 30 years to save less than £30,000 for retirement. And then you're blowing nearly 10000 of that ultimately on your funeral. It's crazy. That money could be put to a better, much better use. Did you know Motive Partners has a weekly newsletter? It's called Brain Food. It comes out every Sunday morning and it's packed with all the things you need to know about financial services and technology. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com. So let's talk death tech. I first came across death tech when I was a child and I was obsessed with Superman. And Christopher Reeve in the film amazing actor playing Superman. I feel silly talking about this, to be honest, but goes back to Krypton and he puts these long white silver crystal-y things into this thing and up pops his father, Jor-El, who coaches him, who tells him about life's 
rich tapestry and helps him through certain periods. That for me was incredible. If at some point I could have put a crystal in a thing and uh, my grandfather could have popped up and coached me through some of the hardships that I knew that he was uniquely well equipped to deal with, God, that would be a life-changing experience. And you've started with Wills. Uh, that was the hook from what I can tell. You moved into probates. You're now into burning people. Where does this go? Well, yeah, people. Really... I should not say burning people. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. I mean, that's, that is the reality of what happens. Like, you know, it's, it's something we take really seriously. Families are obviously, it's a really difficult thing to deal with the death of a loved one. But so much of the problem in the industry is obscuring the reality of what actually happens when you die. So I think burning people is a perfectly reasonable thing to say. I regret um, saying it, but keep going. <laughs> anyway, I'll defend you. Um, Thanks, mate. So I think the fascinating thing about this is, I mean, I don't totally know where it goes. I think some of the stuff that you're talking about is absolutely fascinating and we totally have the technology to do it nowadays. When I started the business, the key KPI that we worked on for the first six months was the percentage of people who included either a personal message or a funeral wish in their will. It wasn't revenue growth. It wasn't anything like that. It was can we change the situation, which if you write a will on the high street with a solicitor, about one in 30 people includes any of that personal stuff in their wills. It tends to be just this exercise in legal compliance. And we were focusing on, can we get someone to actually to emotionally kind of spiritually engage in what really matters to them when they're doing their will, as well as saying, here's who gets my stuff. And we went from that roughly 3% as a market average to about 75% of our customers doing that. Yeah. And Superman, great reference. Another great reference, I don't know if you've seen it, is the film P.S. I Love You. Yeah, excellent. Perf Absolutely. That's a bang. That's a real banger. Yeah, but there is that. There's the P.S. I Love You style things that get written into our wills are the most glorious little vignettes of someone's life. You know, whether it is a dad writing to his two kids, like a paragraph that is so unbelievably moving. I can read you some of these things because we have permission from our customers to share them. Obviously get specific permission down to someone who left a thousand pounds to their colleagues and said, buy a box of chocolates for everyone in the office apart from Carol in HR. That kind of stuff is, oh, you know, it's Carol. just as, it's poor just Carol. as valid. It's just as important. And when someone gets to their deathbed, it's one of the things that clarifies most in your whole life, what really matters to you. And you know what is very rarely money. So I think there's a misrepresentation of where all of us derive value throughout the course of our lives. And then definitely what happens when we die that kind of gets borne out into an industry that's got sort of sterile and a bit emotionless and has potentially departed from what really matters. You know, some of the oldest documents that I think potentially the oldest written thing in the world is a, is a will. I think okay. I could definitely be wrong. So, so. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with it. I like, yeah. Like yeah. It. And it's a kind of tablet of who gets someone's slaves and something like that. But in the Roman forum, it used to be that you said your will out publicly. And then I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to, I mean, there's going to be so many comments about, about historical inaccuracy. This is directionally correct. Um, yeah. You'd read your will out in the forum and it would be this total mixture of, you know, the hopes and dreams for your children and, you know, how you want someone to look after your wife and your aspirations for the Senate as much as it would be about who gets your lovely Roman pots. And, you know, as time's gone on, it's become this more formalized, more sterile, more legal process that's totally departed from the essence of this is a document that says who I am for people to remember you by, what is important to you after you die. And that's what we're trying to kind of bring back from a consumer perspective and currently doing. 
a decent job at. You've hit the nail on the head. It's legacy. Yeah. Right? And present is fleeting and past is forever. I think if you can help enable people to leave a legacy, to have longevity in the meaning of their life, there is no more powerful business on the planet. I totally, I totally agree. And I'm glad you said it, not me, because, because it can sound a bit grandiose, but that is really where my motivation comes from. I think there's nothing sadder than someone not really discovering what they want to do with their life. And one of the best ways to do that is to think about the fact that one day you're going to be dead. You know, it's, 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 death isn't really a part of life for most of us, but you know, if you're a Buddhist, you're kind of mandated to meditate about death every day. Yeah. I think I think there's logic to that. And I think there's a huge amount of value and gratification and self-discovery to be gained for it. But that's exactly why I didn't say it, because I start sounding really up myself. <laughs> well, and I, I think the point you're making is a really good one. And you don't have to be Winston Churchill or Ada Lovelace. You can be little old Doris or 98-year-old Peter down the road that have a very small circle of influence, but it's how you touch that circle of influence. Totally. I think legacy is such a relevant word as well. One of the things, one of the major ways that we grew when we started the business was working with charities. So there's something called legacy fundraising, which is basically raising money for charities through gifts in wills. And it is an enormous part of the third sector, up to half of total annual income for some of the biggest charities in the UK comes through gifts in wills. And there's this stat in the legacy fundraising world, which is that 35% of people want to include a gift to a charity in their will. It's how they want to be remembered, but only 7% of people do it. And it's kind of similar to what we've done on the kind of leaving messages side of things. You know, by the time you've been sat in front of your solicitor for two hours answering questions about, you know, the percentages of your house you want to leave in trust and whatever, it starts to kind of just not relate to reality and what you actually want to achieve. So one of the things that been working on is closing that gap between 7% of people who actually do it and the 35% of people who say they want to. So we work with almost 100 charities now. In the last two years, we've raised about £170 million in pledged wow. income for charities in the UK, which, you know, at the beginning of last year, our team had about 15 people in it, which I think meant per head in our team, we were one of the best fundraising organizations in the entire world. Yeah. Kind of, I want to say by design, but it was slightly by accident. So you get all these amazing other things happening when you kind of unlock some of the kind of potential and warmth and view on legacy in the process. All these other amazing things happen. You know, we get amazing excerpts in our will from someone who's left a gift to Stonewall about the fact that they grew up in Scunthorpe in the 50s and no one around them was gay and Stonewall was the only place for them to reach out and they helped them come out, they helped them discover themselves and there'll be this kind of brilliant, moving sort of love letter to a charity and what they've helped them go through. That's been an amazing part of what we've done. It sounds so rewarding. Perpetual altruism is an interesting one, something that keeps on giving. I'm actually an investor in a firm called Perpetual Altruism. That's not a plug, it's, it's just a really interesting concept that if you can help people keep on giving beyond their time on this planet, then that's really powerful. Not, not just for those they're touching, but, but in general. You, I think, awarded a ton of awards last year, one of which was the best use of technology in 2019, which is just a great title. I mean, that cuts across every sector. Eat your heart out, Facebook. Farewell of doing it. And I guess what I wanted to talk about really was the point you just made. You've gone from 15 people to 60-odd people. Scaling at that pace whilst keeping true to your culture, your mission, and your vision isn't easy. Who are you finding to come work in Death Tech? And how involved are you in that process? 
Oh, yes. Me and my co-founder for our COO, Constance, as well. The main thing I think we got good at early on was hiring. Or potentially one of the only things we got good at early on was hiring. And one of our investors had this kind of like talent partner called Michelle Coventry, who is one of the best people in talent in the world. And she taught us how to hire. And the frustrating answer of how to hire is is a lot of work like you know if we're looking for a role we will go through without recruiters and source hundreds of candidates like by hand into people who we think look to be a good fit for the role you know both before doing this podcast and after I'm on interviews with people this week I'm doing 38 interviews for two wow. roles that I'm hiring for and like the company is big now that's not a normal week for me at all I just happen to be hiring two quite big roles it's a huge pain in the ass like it's really hard and you've got to pitch like pitching to someone at a C level in a business who loves their job and is amazing at it for them to come and join your business I'm sorry Tim Levine and all of other investors but it's 10 times harder than raising money you know an investor wants to give you the money someone else has got a great job and a bunch of friends and a company that they chose to join in the first place and in half an hour I've got to convince them that maybe they should come and spend their time working in death like that's a hard sell so ultimately it is all about the people who join the company and anyone who doesn't completely overinvest in talent I think then goes through this really difficult transformational period of having to bin off the people who mm. haven't scaled with the business but I'd say we have very few people like that I think we've hired people with massive amounts of potential or experience or great cultural fit and there is no answer to what makes a good culture but our culture people are incredibly kind and compassionate which is really important when you're building the type of consumer services that we do you know we are incredibly highly rated across all three of our products on Trustpilot it's like 4.9 out of 5 with thousands of reviews which is hard to do when you're dealing with something like cremations or probate mm -hmm. inherently frustrating time so hiring people who are kind and compassionate is like we don't ever cross that line and hire someone brilliant who's a bit of a knobhead and uh, it's the first time that word's been used on this podcast really actually. okay yeah. well yeah um <laughs> and if you think about an axis like kind of two axes and you've got shared goals and divergent goals on the y-axis obviously there's no value to having divergent goals. i'm drawing this by the way yeah please there's no value to having divergent goals in a business not one that i've found anyway and then on the x-axis, you've got kind of shared perspectives and divergent perspectives. And there's loads of companies that are in that sort of shared perspective, shared goals type of arena. You know, if you think about a consulting firm and everyone's like super bright and swish and numerical and politically on the same page with each other. Our company is so firmly on the like divergent perspectives type of things. You know, we've got almost everyone in the team has had like you know a bizarre route into their career kind of like me they're multidisciplinary, multi-faceted like broad range of what mm. they're interested in from behavioral psychologists who are software engineers to you know teachers who work in marketing mm -hmm. i think that it creates an incredible culture of open-mindedness when people are at work and then you also just have to hire people who have got a lot of horsepower upstairs. Like everyone is so phenomenally intelligent. And we often have people joining the company being like, whoa, everyone's really smart, which is nice. It's great. Yeah. That is really good. 
I think we've avoided one of the problems that some tech companies struggle with as well, where, you know, at one point our whole software engineering team was women. And you often get like a friend of mine ran a company where, you know, they had a big team, they had an engineering team of 20 and there was no women on the team. So, you know, the majority of our leadership team are women, the majority of our software engineering team are as well. And it can be difficult in technology. You know, the majority of software engineers are men. And I don't exactly know why that's happened. I think it's great that it has happened, but I think it's partly just to do with what we work on as a company, the culture that we've created, having phenomenal leadership Mm. that's helped to attract a kind of more diverse range of candidates. But it's a non-negotiable part of hiring at pace is making sure you're doing it in a way which is as inclusive as possible. Do you have plans to expand internationally? And how do you keep that consistency and that level of execution? Yes, we have ideas about expanding internationally. I thought we were going to get another exclusive. I wouldn't call them them plans yet. We've done a lot of work on it. And I think there's some amazing opportunities for us internationally. And how do you maintain, you maintain that by continuously putting effort into it. We've got two people who work in talent in our company who are amazing, but we source and hire as a team. So if you're hiring into a product team, you'll have the engineers, designers and product manager sourcing candidates. You'll have them doing phone screens, which means that it's kind of like an organ transplant. You don't want it to be rejected. You need everyone to be bought in, unbelievably excited and culturally amplifying whoever gets hired rather than saying, okay, like the HR department's in charge of recruitment. So I think you continuously painfully um it's a labor of love 100%. because getting the right person in the team is so energizing and the dividends it pays is amazing yeah awesome dan we're slowly running out of time which is frustrating because i could talk about this all day a few questions to end on that typically i ask a lot of people what does your day look like i'm very disorganized person i don't have a routine at all to the point where i leave my house in the morning i don't know if i'm going to turn left or right to go to work i really value that level of spontaneity one benefit of being very bad at planning is that i will like real time prioritize my day and my week and be able to orientate myself towards wherever i can have the most impact in the business so rather than being like okay i came up with a plan a month ago and i said i'd do these three things those three things are highly unlikely to still be the three most important things in a few weeks time so i'm a fan of like spontaneous real time planning which can make me terrible to work with but must have an incredible COO. Um, we do have an incredible COO and I also as of Friday have an incredible chief of staff which is amazing there's not really a routine the shape of my week is I have my kind of one-to-ones with the leadership team on a Monday we've got our leadership team meeting on a Tuesday and a kind of all team meeting I work from home on a Wednesday which is really good Six or seven baths in a day, never hurt anyone. Um, and that is a joke, Tim Levine, I'm sorry. Um, and yeah, there's there's no real pattern to it. Next week, for instance, we're probably going to go and raise a series B. Like business is growing really well. I think we're in a really exciting position to do it. So, so I'm thinking about raising a series B this year. And next week, I've just cancelled all my meetings and have three days to kind of think about that and write a first version of a kind of fundraising deck. So yeah, it's thoroughly unpredictable and probably could be better. I've already got anxiety thinking. Yeah, yeah, me too. too. I probably should go back to work. (laughs) Final question and then you do get to go back to work. I hope you're not going home. No. It's Wednesday today, right? It is Wednesday, but now I'm going to work. Okay, already had six baths. Final question. You have an impressive cap table and load of investors. 
How did you go about that? Did they come to you? It sounds like they did when you had your wooden box chucking out wheels. Yeah. Has fundraising been laborious or has that been an area that you, you've enjoyed because of the proposition? I really, really like it. I think it's really hard when you haven't done it before. So when you're raising a seed round, because you've got no idea what the rules are. And, you know, an investor's job in some ways, and lots of people won't necessarily like this, particularly in the seed stage, is like you want to get the best deal possible. You know, you go to work. The time for you to really go to work is to get the best deal possible. When you're talking to someone who's never basically run a company before, I think that first seed round is a real learning curve. I absolutely loved doing our Series A because I get so amped up talking about what we do. It's a pleasure to talk about what we do and to go to go person to person to some of the most amazing venture investors in the UK and the US. That's my Siri. I don't know if anyone heard that. It said, I don't know what you mean by I absolutely love. Yeah, the, the chance to go around and meet these incredible investors who've you know backed brilliant consumer brands that we look up to and get to talk to them about how we should grow the business, how we should scale it, how we approach our team and get to sell my heart out. I really liked it. I did have an operation on my nose just before we started fundraising. I wasn't able to smell for years. And oh while I was raising on Series A, I had these like bandages all over my face and it kept on, <laughs> it's really disgusting, but it kept on, kept on bleeding. Oh my God. When I was in these meetings, you know, people give me a coffee and I'd be like dunking my nose in the coffee. And I think, you know, people looked really horrified, but at the same time they were like, wow, this guy must really want it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I found, I found it really fun. I met some absolutely incredible people and I'm looking for forward to doing it again but you know who knows in six months i might kind of retract that comment <laughs> awesome yeah before you say stuff that you'll regret tim hearing we'll call it quits there but dan this has been genuinely one of the most fascinating conversations i've had for a long time i've got death tech on the mind which i never thought i'd say and i can't wait to see where you guys go it's well, awesome great thank you so much for having me good luck and thank you thank you for your time and insights and thank you very much for tuning in i'm sam see you next time the information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motive partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.